Good evening and welcome to IMS and to the Metta or Metta Vipassana retreat. I'd like first of all to introduce the teachers. My name is Stephen Smith and next to me is Michelle McDonald and then Susan O'Brien. Been teaching at IMS for a long time. Rebecca Bradshaw is in the uh, our IMS teacher training program and assisting Michelle and I over many years here. And behind Rebecca is Dhamma Ruan from Sri Lanka. Uh, I was just reminding him, I, I've known him since he was 10 or 11. I met him in 1977 in Sri Lanka. And he'll be doing chanting, very uh, authentic Pali uh, chanting in the evening time uh, to draw you all to the late night sit. And, uh, and in front of Dhamma Ruan is uh, Franz, who is very gifted in the art of Qigong, and he's been helping us also for many years at uh, the spring retreat and at other retreats around uh, the world, this, uh, this country and Europe and Asia. Uh, and I think, Franz, you just might want to say a few words about what you're going to do as usual. Okay. And uh, thank you very much. Okay. Uh, the thing called the scatterology is I every day between three and four there's mindful movements. And it consists of movements coming from the Chinese tradition called Qigong. And Qi usually means the life force, life energy, prana, they call it the leader. And Gong means usually practice to cultivate. So in the context of in the context of this retreat, we use the movement, the mindful movement that's laid on the and in the context of the meta retreat, we use the movement in order to develop a meta, the center of the movement for ourselves, for our own body and mind, and then let's get the, uh, the movement or the feeling of meta with our body out to all beings. So, okay, what, what can I say? Check it out. In Hipati Koa, for yourself. So if it's raining, uh, we are doing inside here in the hall. <coughs> Outside, what's called the yogi path. It's a field down there next to the tennis court. And uh, as, as we go on, I'll I tell you a little bit more about it. Okay, thanks. Uh, so I'd like to give a short uh, introductory talk to the practice of loving kindness and also um, a bit about just how we hold the container of this sacred space together, how we create it, how it's held. And then uh, Stephen will lead a, a loving-kindness meditation. Oh, yeah, and a few other things, <laughs> like uh, talking about, in terms of holding the container, um, the, the way in which we undertake the training roles of non-harming and also taking refuge. There are three trainings that um, we undertake in terms of developing a, uh, I think, a true, kind, um, awake human being. 
the first training is in non-harming. And as I said, and as we said, Steve will do uh, a little talk on that and we'll, we'll chant the commitments that we take together. And that, that's a huge area in which we create uh, the trust that allows us to um, go deep inside and to do the purification work to become a more awake, kind being. The two um, other trainings, which we'll be doing a lot in this next week together, and they kind of go back and forth in this practice, we'll be emphasizing uh, the second training, which is concentration. So these trainings are often called sila, samadhi, panya, sila being non-harming or morality, and then the second is concentration or samadhi, and the third is panya, wisdom. In the loving-kindness practice, there is a great emphasis initially uh, with the concentration. Uh, Loving-kindness really means love with understanding. So as we develop the loving-kindness practice, we are also developing understanding. And I think you'll you'll be very, it's very intriguing in a way to see how these two practices of concentration, the training of concentration, the training of understanding, how they um, support each other, how they complement each other. I like to see a loving-kindness retreat as planting a loving-kindness garden. You know, and it takes um, great care and tending uh, to plant a garden uh, and if you look at this practice over, over years, you can see that it's even more than just cultivating uh, ground, but it's also like planting a tree, and that over time you'll see that this uh, loving-kindness um, makes great fruit. You know, it makes delicious fruit for us. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that in that talk, how, how this happens for us and how it affects our our understanding and that that great fruit that comes out of this practice. I like to think of loving-kindness as awakening to the love that we all naturally feel for each other and for ourselves. Uh, So we get a sense that this isn't something that we have to produce or make happen, but it's something that um, is naturally there in us. I think we all have a very deep aspiration uh, to experience this love, this pure love. Uh, it's, pr- it's so deep in us. And it's nice to be able to come into a retreat like this and have that, um, th- this resonance of teachings, of staff that support us, of nature that also supports us. One aspect of of coming into a retreat and starting to feel this loving-kindness is to reflect on how precious it is to be able to practice. It's precious to be uh, born a human being, and, and that's something to cherish in and of itself. And then, you know, if you look at how most human beings uh, get to live on this planet, even though it can take a lot of effort for us to get here, and it takes a lot of support from our friends and family, and initially 
you know, the first night and the next day we sort of wonder why we didn't go on a vacation uh, in a sunny place, you know, maybe. But, you know, we take our rare time that we have in our culture and and initially often we wonder, well, why did I do this? Um, And it's so rare to do this. It's so rare to have the aspiration and then to um, fulfill that, to deepen the aspiration. So I really want to thank you for making the effort to get here. All of us, you know, we've all come from different directions a long way. The practice here that supports the cultivation of the three trainings is, in this context, noble silence. And I really appreciate more and more how this is called noble. Noble silence. You know, what does that mean? You know, I, I think it just, it just creates this container uh, of such safety where we let ourselves be, we let each other be in a way that is so profound and, and also, again, so rare. If you're new to this kind of silence, I would imagine that within about five minutes (laughs) you'll start appreciating uh, the ease. One aspect that's so wonderful is that we don't have to be our personalities for a while, and how wonderful that is. We get to drop the masks, the defenses, and just be. The silence is meant to protect us. It protects us uh, from ourselves and others. It protects our solitude. It protects the concentration. And it protects the development of understanding. So we're not practicing in the middle of a household life in this context, again, for, for a reason. This doesn't mean that we cannot practice in the household life. We can practice loving kindness and mindfulness anywhere. You know, so we get to see, well, what is the difference here? This incredible support, this incredible protection. And that allows for the depth of the training. So this is really a place of um, dedication to our deepest aspirations. And when you... um, go to the deepest center of anyone, you usually find that our deepest aspirations as as human beings um, are to develop compassion, love, and wisdom. This can be a very beautiful way of life, and it's meant to create a beautiful home inside. So this isn't meant to just be practiced here and then not integrated into our life. This is meant to create a more beautiful heart and home within ourselves, a deeper trust of ourselves, so that we can bring the gift of this um, loving kindness and wisdom back out into the world, which uh, so desperately needs that.
whether we practice loving kindness or mindfulness, I would say that we're learning a deep respect for whatever is arising in our life in each moment. Uh, and so out of the silence, it's, it's that we get to deeply listen. And so this is the relationship to the silence in our practice here, is, is to remember that the silence really is that foundation of deep respect and deep listening, no matter what practice we do. And the stillness, um, the stillness that we are learning in this practice is really mindfulness of loving kindness. So this practice is a kind of mindfulness. It's a mindfulness of love with understanding. I have a four-year-old great-niece that is teaching me a lot about um, anger. And she's one of the, I guess she's the only um, person in my blood family that reminds me a lot of me. Uh, that she has this kind of wild, passionate intensity that the rest of the family can't stand. Uh, (laughs) And uh, she's already getting pretty uh, pummeled by the rest of the family in terms of, you know, just kind of making her shut down that energy and shut it down and shut it down. Uh, You know, so when we see each other, we really have a good time because... (laughs) It's like two soulmates coming together. <laughs> Whoopee! Uh, but, you know, like I said, the rest of the family really doesn't appreciate me, <laughs> so they're not really that happy that I encourage her. Um, so you'll hear a few stories about this in this retreat, but I wanted to share my latest one. I went to um, visit uh, th- that family recently, uh, and my niece, her mother, is. Um, I raised her when she was a child, one of three that I raised, and um, and four, my stepdaughter. Uh, <laughs> Tracy was born an adult. You know, she was born having it together. You know, she's never had to improve this quality of just having it together. Um, so just keep that in mind that she's um, not that sort of wild abandonment type. And so her mother was inside the house, and I took uh, my niece Brenna outside, <laughs> and I got some chalk, and I had her lay down on the um, driveway, which, you know, for her is great, right? You know, no one else has her lie down on the driveway. And I took some chalk, and I, ha- I outlined her whole body. And then um, she got up, and it was almost like this was the first time she really saw herself, in a way. She was looking at it, and I filled in her hair, then I made this fun skirt, and you know she's looking at it, and you know then she took the chalk and she made this face, and it was so angry. I mean, it was like the teeth. My favorite part when it is the teeth. These teeth were just, <sighs> you know, this is the whole, the whole head was just these big teeth and these little eyes, and then I said, oh, you know, who's this? And her name is Brenna, and I said, who's this? And she said, that's Kelsey. And Kelsey's her imaginary friend, you know, so here's Kelsey, <coughs> looking pretty angry, you know, and I said, well, why don't you lay down again, and, and you know, it was great, she laid down again, and, 
and we did the whole thing, and she made a face. And her happy face is just one tooth that looks like a bird beak. It's really funny. She says, this is one tooth that looks like a bird. And I said, well, who's this? And she said, that's me. Right? You know, that's her happy face. And so I was looking at it, and her mother came out the door, and she freaked out, just totally freaked out. She's like, I can't let her see this. You know? <laughs> she she was, just didn't want her mother to see the angry face. She was so upset. I mean, it was just like a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, except that she was, you know, it wasn't a cartoon. We had this little eraser, and we were erasing it, and, you know, we, it was this blurred sort of, it became this one-tooth blurred face, and her, <laughs> her mother came out, and she was beside herself. And she was so, she just didn't want her mother to see this side of herself. She's four. You know, and it was so interesting, it's like, to just see how the conditioning for us to present that, you know, we're okay, we're happy, we're not angry, we're perfect. So when you read the brochure and you see that you're coming to a loving-kindness retreat, sometimes we get this idea that we're going to just get more and more blissed out and loving, and that we don't go through also a purification practice where we get to face that other, that other face that we have. And that other face isn't just angry. It, it's sad. It, it's afraid. It's lonely. You know, we have these different um, parts of ourselves. And in, in loving kindness and in mindfulness, uh, the happiness is coming from including these parts of ourselves, not excluding them. And this is where love and wisdom come together. Because our idea of um, being acceptable, yeah, being, you know, how much do we want to be loved for who we are, really? Well, it starts with us being able to love ourselves, all the different aspects of ourselves. And then we're able to love all the different aspects of other people the more we can love ourselves. So this isn't a selfish act that we're doing. It's really the more you accept uh, your own anger and can be loving toward yourself with that, the more you can be that with someone else. And it's across the board, whether it's sadness or fear. So this is a very powerful practice because we're, we're transforming a life of misery that comes from hiding all these parts of ourselves and then never being able to transform them into love and wisdom, into really gradually having enough loving kindness, which is a non-judgmental attention, to, to accept all moments of life, all aspects of ourselves. The other, the other part of that is that really we're uncovering our innate goodness, goodness, no matter what. You know, and that's often something we might feel a lot of shame about or guilt about, you know, but really we all have this innate goodness and this practice is meant to also uncover that more and more, that light inside. The Buddha taught um, loving-kindness as one of four what he called Brahma Viharas. Uh, Vihara is home. Brahma is divine or ideal. Uh, so the first is loving kindness or metta. 
The second is compassion, karuna. The third is empathetic joy, or mudita. And the fourth is upekka, or equanimity. It's important as we go through the retreat that at least we explain the context of these four because they are meant to be like a package. So this first uh, Brahma-vihara loving-kindness is really tuning into our deepest wishes for ourselves and others. And the Buddha taught it, I love the way the Buddha taught it because he used a mother cow as an example with a, um, a baby calf. So he used an animal as an example for loving-kindness. He said that it's that experience when the mother cow looks at her newborn calf. That's loving-kindness. So of course, you know, there's this newborn, you wish them well. You know, as an adult, that this being is going to face you know, the human world, which is a mix of pain and pleasure, and it's not predictable, it's out of our control. But just because life is full of its ups and downs, it doesn't mean that we don't wish well this being that's newborn. So he taught that we can wish this for ourselves, that we cultivate this ability to see ourselves as newborn and to make that connection with ourselves in that way and also to feel that for others. And so this is a practice. We cultivate it. It's not something that we're assuming we all are born to do perfectly. We practice wishing ourselves well. We practice wishing the people around us well. We'll be practicing many different ways to wish well. And one time Steve gave this example of how I think it works, which I think is beautiful, which if you had an empty glass and you were going to fill it with water, at a certain point you're filling it and filling it and the water starts spilling over. That's really how this practice works. That if you see your body as an empty glass, your body, heart, mind, and you start filling it up with these well wishes, And it takes patience. Sometimes it'll feel very dry. Sometimes you'll wonder why you're doing it, because you'll forget that's what we're doing it, doing. And at some point, it spills over naturally, and you wish someone else well. Now, it's not always that cut and dry, and you'll see we'll encourage you to wish well, and a a benefactor, a dear friend, then come back to yourself. But the idea is that... um, over time, as you plant this garden, uh, that it is more like a tree that's bearing fruit. And sometimes we even surprise ourselves by how much we can be kind to ourselves, or how we can be kind to others. So the reason I think it's such a beautiful um, image that the Buddha used for a cow um, is that it's that there's a way in which um, we become so out of touch with this instinct, and that it is that natural. 
And I see this practice as kind of, um, because culturally, we don't live in such a warm culture in a way, or moist culture. It can be very dry. The mindfulness practice can become very dry in terms of if we're trying to be with our moment-to-moment experience. Often, if our heart is hard, we can't soften into what's difficult. It's like we, the resistance to a lot of our experience is based on so much judgment that these experiences aren't acceptable because it means, it means that we're not good because we're having them. Um, the loving-kindness practice really cuts through that. Mindfulness really is the intention to understand rather than to judge. And the loving-kindness practice helps support that so that we really are shifting that intention to our our life to understand rather than to judge, to understand (laughs) rather than to judge. I mean, I've had a few few years recently that have been so difficult, and it's so easy to ask the question, why is it so hard? What's wrong with me? Versus, (laughs) you know? This is what's happening, and can I show up for it with a lot of care and love? So the loving-kindness practice helps our heart become soft and open enough to understand life as it is. And as I kind of alluded to, when, um, when we have that happy face in practice with the one tooth, there'll be times when we'll be feeling like the lo- love is there at times, and it'll feel like um, the practice is happening in the way we want. And that's usually the moments when the metta is pure. Um, but it's a long day, right? You know, we, we practice a long day. And there are other times when it'll feel, again, like, Maybe a lot of anger is coming up, or resistance, or it'll feel mechanical, or boring, or dry. And try to have patience with that, because if we're judging (laughs) the practice, it just makes it harder. And we'll, of course, come up with all kinds of instruction for how to work with all this, but just sort of as a a general instruction, uh, the biggest obstacle in this practice is judging whether the metta is there or not whether the love is there or not. And often it isn't. <laughs> so that t- those times when we feel needy, or that the attached love has come up, or whatever it is, um, it's okay. It's the purification part of this process. And if we don't see those aspects of life, and if we don't work with them, we never learn to work with them. And we just we become more afraid of those aspects of ourselves and more judgmental and less loving. Ernest Hemingway said, In a farewell to arms, the world breaks everyone, and afterwards many are strong in the broken places.
The world breaks everyone, and afterwards many are strong in the broken places. And it's really the loving kindness that makes us strong in the broken places, and then allows us to um, heal those places with the love, compassion, but also with the insight that makes us um, more enlightened in terms of really being in this human world with wisdom rather than judgment. And I see, I see this, um, sometimes it'll feel like love and wisdom are opposite. Uh, but how, how I see this, it, it's like the more we learn to hold ourselves with a loving kindness, and especially, I think that we don't, we didn't learn, most of us growing up, how to hold ourselves through difficulty. But it's like our culture's becoming more and more unglued. And it's because of this metta that's lacking. The loving kindness is what glues us. It holds us together through the vicissitudes of life. So the metta really holds you together <laughs> so that you can um, let go. And it holds us together so we can let go. And so they really s can seem par paradoxical, but they're actually complementary. And when love and wisdom come together, I think we feel whole and complete. As you learn to hold yourself, you learn to hold others. And that extends out to holding all beings in this universe with loving kindness and wisdom. So that undertaking this, I know you can be tired at the beginning of a retreat, but undertaking this is such a, a, a radical, powerful act in this world. And thank you. Thank you so much for being willing to do this. For those of you who aren't familiar with the refuges and precepts, uh, I'll give a short explanation of it. I will um, also give more extensive gratitude to my teacher and teachers and lineage when I uh, give my uh, Dharma talk in a night or two, but I do want to stay right off from the beginning that I I honor my teachers and the long lineage uh, back to the time of the Buddha. And I honor uh, all of our personal genetic lineages that make it possible for us to be who we are, whoever we are in this lifetime, to be in this room together, to be doing something quite extraordinary. The gratitude practice is... is um, I think, a integral part of meditation. So I will talk more of it later. It's customary uh, 
in Asia to begin all retreats by taking the three refuges and the uh, and precepts, five or eight, uh, or even more. In this case, we'll be taking uh, the five precepts of non-harming. The three refuges is where we place our heart, where we place our trust in creating a, can a sacred and protected canopy where, within which the deep things of the Dharma can arise, can be seen, can be healed, can become glued together, as Michelle's saying. So we take refuge in uh, what's known as triple gem, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. If you have some knowledge or familiarity with the historical Buddha and know, um, know his story, then it's easy to use him as an external image to take refuge in because he lived a life of renunciation. He lived a life of, of Dhamma, the truth, which is the actual refuge. If we don't know so much about the Buddha, then we can uh, take it as the uh, the meaning of the word uh, of awakened or light within. So that nature, as Michelle was saying, of metta and all the Dhamma aspects, that's already within, whether it's dormant or semi-awake or active, it's, it's there. So we take refuge in that, that Buddha quality within us. Refuge in the Dhamma is, Dhamma is how we pronounce it in the Theravada tradition, which is what we practice here. In the Sanskrit, Mahayana, we call it Dharma. So you'll hear us use one or other or both of them. Sometimes they somehow get mixed up and you hear a Dhamma, Rama, and you know, but we're saying one or the other. <laughs> and they mean the same thing. Dhamma means um, nature. It means true nature means universal nature, the truth of things as they really are, not as compared to a falsehood that is not a, a belief system that this is the truth, this philosophy is the truth, and all these others are not. It's our own experience. It's what we experience when the doors of our perception are cleansed and clear, and we see for ourselves with our own uh, mindfulness, our own Dhamma vision, uh, the nature of things, be it metta or be it the nature of the body and the mind, uh, through both metta and vipassana practices. Refuge in Sangha. Uh, sangha, in the largest sense, is uh, all the all community of spiritual beings practicing for their liberation. When we take refuge, however, we take refuge in a very particular sangha, and that is in the ordained nuns and monks, lay women and lay men who have achieved some degree of depth or of uh, insight and uh, awakening into the Dhamma and can be and are trustworthy as guides in the in the journey of awakening in the journey of liberation. So that's what we take refuge in, since it's a very profound and very um, 
you know, vulnerable place to put our confidence and our trust in creating this space. That's refuge. Buddha Dhamma Sangha, very related, is the um, commitment that we all take to a culture of non-harming. And so we, we will chant this together because there's a power in saying it. You know, it's obvious to us that uh, killing is harmful and, and it doesn't take much mindfulness to realize that the kind of mind state that arises when we kill anything um, is anger or ill will or uh, frustration or, or hatred of some type. So to the time of the retreat, we're even taking this first precept to include all living beings whatsoever. That can be a challenge at this time of year when we have all these little creatures that come out, black flies and mosquitoes. And they can really bug us because some people get real, uh, like myself, I get real allergic reactions to them. They're different than Hawaiian mosquitoes, <laughs> which just kind of bite and take their nourishment and they go away. And, and it itches for 10 seconds and it's gone. But these, heli these uh, mosquitoes around here are almost the size of mini helicopters. And, and they leave big welts. So we have to get really creative with uh, the things that we offer to protect natural things and nets and nets to catch them with. Were you going to say something? No CMs, no yeah. Another type of, of bug. You know, but think of it this way. They have a very short life. So we can actually feel compassion for whatever it is they have to do. Most of the uh, black flies are gone, you know, uh, by pretty soon, right? They don't yeah. last. <laughs> <laughs> so if we just give metta to the little short life that they have, they might one day and be able to be sitting here, you know, on, in, in our Dhamma retreats. Not stealing is um, also obvious, but to say it is powerful and all the little implications of it. We, we might have this kind of natural habits of mind. We see something lying around, a piece of paper, you know, or a, a bench or a zafu leaning in the corner and think, well, no one's using it. But our um, this culture of complete and total uh, safety and, and trust really means leaving everything that you see where it is, not taking anything that isn't freely offered that you don't ask for, you know, be it a food or m meditation spots, uh, zafus, chairs, and so forth. The, the uh, precept around sexuality it's, it's obvious around retreat time that we're trying to cultivate the energy uh, not only for careful and respectful, skillful regard for how we use our skillful, uh, how we use our sexuality in skillful ways in our daily lives, but in the context of a retreat, we're using all of our desire in the highest possible way we can. So for metta, we're using metta chanda or metta raga, metta desire. 
in Vipassana practice, we use Dhamma Chanda or Dhamma Raga, passion or desire for, for truth, for Dhamma. So we're gathering up all the energies that might go in any direction and focus on what we're here for. So this third precept of Brahmacharya is to abstain for the time being from any kind of sexual energy. And just watching and seeing the value, discovering that value. Two, to refrain or abstain from saying what's not true. Even though we are under the noble silence, there are inward ways we talk to ourselves all the time. You know, we're always telling ourselves little stories and having conversations with ourselves. So to take this take this precept and to say it out loud starts right here with how we regard our own minds and how we relate to our own minds. When we start meditating, we spend a lot of time looking at, using awareness, mindfulness, to look at our attitude of mind, motivation, opinion, uh, what, we, what might color the meditation we're about to do. And this can very easily reveal uh, you know, all the little collection of stories that may not be true about ourselves and others. So this fourth precept has great significance overall in the very aim of Dhamma practice itself. Fifth precept, it's about the non, um, you know, using any kinds of medication to distract the mind, color the mind, pro prevent the mind from seeing clearly. Now, some people are taking, you know, prescription medicines. Uh, that, that's fine. Over-the-counter things that you need to take, that's fine. You know, we're talking about here intentionally using drugs or alcohol to alter consciousness. Two weeks ago, Michelle and I uh, were guest speakers at the um, Diamond Sangha in Honolulu, Palolo Zen Center. They were doing a series on non-harming, on the precepts. And so we shared the night. Michelle spoke on the, on the restraint aspect of sila, of non-harming. That is, abstaining from things that cause ourselves or other people harm. The other side of that, and equally important and equally positive, is the more active aspect or expression of these precepts. In Burma, we have a practice called uh, Brahma-Vihara-Sila. That is the Brahma-Viharas that Michelle just spoke of. The very practice we're doing this week, one way of looking at it is we're putting into action through our, all of our senses and our thoughts, our bodies, uh, our speech, putting into action the power of non-harming. Brahma-Vihara-Sila is the practicing of non-harming non through loving kindness and compassion, empathetic joy, and deep equanimity. So you'll get a firsthand and you know the other side of, of the sila practice, not just abstaining, but doing what is skillful. Culturing our minds, our thoughts, our emotions in ways that are the most potent, most potentially liberating 
a human being can know. Because these Brahma Viharas, they are the luminous nature of a liberated mind. And we can all know this in our practice, even in this week that's coming up. So we'll say together now, he chant together the, uh, the refuges, do them three times, and then once. We'll do them all together until we get to the precepts. And then I'll say a word or a line, and we'll, um, and then you can repeat after me. <clears throat> so first we do this honorific to, in honor of, of the Buddha. Buddhas come at times when they're most needed on this planet. Very, the times when the seeds they plant can have the longest effect. We're, we're still receiving the, the beauty and the power and the effect of the Buddhist teaching. So we start with, let's start together. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddham saranam gachami, Namam saranam gachami, Sangang saranam gachami, Dutyampi buddham saranam gachami, Dutyampi dhammam saranam gachami, Dutiyambi sangang saranangachami. Tatiyambi buddham saranangachami. Tatiyambi dhammam saranangachami. Tatiyambi sangang saranangachami. Panati pata. We Ramani, Sika Padam, Samadhyami, Adina Dana, We Ramani, Sika Padam, Samadhyami, Abrahmacharya. We Ramani, Sika Padam, Samadhyami, Musawada. We Ramani, Sika Padam, Samadhyami, Sura Mereya. Majapamadatana, We Ramani, Sika Param, Samadhyami, Idame Silam, Magapalanyanasa, Pachayo, O Tu.
We're going to take one minute just to stretch, sitting down, standing up, or whatever. Uh, then I'll give an instruction. We'll do a short sitting, and then um, take rest if you're tired. First teaching in metta practice. In all of Dhamma practice. Is to learn how to be utterly relaxed. At ease. Within yourself. Particularly in the metta practice. It's helpful that your, your body find comfort when you sit. In the Vipassana practice, we learn how to push our, the edge of our envelope in discovering the true nature of the body. And that means even when there's a, a lot of discomfort. And then knowing with wisdom when it's appropriate to move, and then moving, all keeping it part of the practice. There's no, there's no punishment for moving. And we'll tell you again and again, and make you feel at ease to move whenever you have to move. In all of the Dhamma that we'll be doing in the next two weeks. But especially in the, in the metta, you want to remain in comfort. At the same time, you want the body to work its best because when the respiratory system and the nervous system, when the blood circulation, when that's all at its optimum, that's when you're going to find the greatest comfort. It's natural even for the most veteran yogis, the first two or three days, the body is going to feel discomfort. There will be aches and there will be pains. 
just under the surface of the body and even deeper areas of the muscles, bones. But as best you can, try and keep your, your spine straight. And if you align your, your ears with your shoulders, with your hips, with your chin, just, just tucked in a bit, you'll learn to sense that alignment. And the more you can hold that, the more that all these circulatory, respiratory, nervous system uh, energy fields will be at, at their optimum the more you'll be able to let go and relax. Your hands can fall just naturally folded on your lap or on your knees or thighs, eyes gently closed. It is helpful to frequently bring a, mi a mindful awareness to the area of the eyes, looking for any tension we use a lot of image language in Dhamma teaching. Seeing, noticing, watching, observing. And they often entail subconsciously employing the muscles around the eyes. And when we forget to relax and become tense, Tension is almost always excessive energy. But we can discover this by feeling tension around the eyes. And then other areas of the body as well, the back and the neck, lower part of the spine. When we first sit, it can be helpful to Scan the body and feel its sitting nature. This practice that we're doing, um, the technical aspect of it, is the most common meditation in the world. That is, focusing on a single meditation object for the purpose of bringing serenity, tranquility, calmness to the mind. This is good to keep in mind uh, because we also happen to be using as our meditation subject metta, unconditional loving kindness. As Michelle was saying, it is a purification practice. So we're not instantly going to drop into this overflowing, overwhelming and ecstatic, luminous, unconditional love that fills the universe. It will be some time before we even feel the smallest little ember warmth. This may come in the first few hours of practice and then it may go off again and then it may come back. But that will be the nature of its cycle. 
grow stronger and stronger, brighter and brighter as we fan it with the technique of practice. But when it's not particularly there, when we don't feel that warmth, tenderness of metta, the one-pointedness of meditation is still happening, which is of great service for the object of our metta meditation as well as overall in serving vipassana. We are actually practicing vipassana metta, metta with wisdom. We're not practicing it outside of the context of the deepest teachings of liberation. For many, metta is the path to liberation. It becomes itself a primary practice or interwoven with mindfulness. We all up here have a great deal of experience with that and can provide the alternate ways of practice that fit each individual need. But for tonight, the next 10 or 15 minutes, let's begin with ourselves as as a primary metta subject. As we move along the week, we add other subjects that first are more prominent in the sense of easily eliciting the nature of unconditional love. And then more neutral and then more difficult and then connected to all beings, to all life. That's the direction of the practice. It always indeed must begin with ourselves. In fact, the The intention of metta practice is the purification of our own hearts. So how we use the phrases, how we use our metta subjects, all that is merely skillful means. It's the technology of metta, the heart of the metta, the moisture of it is the softening, opening, beauty, and resting in the purity of our own heart. Some people find it helpful, at least in the beginning, to have a physical anchor. For some, that is the entire body. For some, it is an area of the body. It could be the breath. It could be the area around the chest or solar solar plexus that we call heart center. Anchoring there means that you don't move your attention from feeling a physical sensation in that area of the heart center or feeling the body difference between this and Vipassana is we're not noticing its changing nature. In fact, we're just using the anchor as a tool while we visualize our metta subject, which is itself another tool. How do you visualize yourself? 
You can visualize yourself right here and now. Some imagery in which you can see yourself in a relaxed and easy way. You can hold an image of yourself as a child, perhaps sometime in your life, early as you can remember or any time since then, when you felt deeply connected to life, when you felt loved and loving. You can lock in and hold that image. Third way, you can imagine yourself as your own best friend, as someone you've come to know over 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and you like dearly, you would give your life for, and treat yourself as if you would treat this friend. So it helps to stand back just enough from identifying with ourselves in ways that are judgmental, are non-accepting. Michelle mentioned patience. Metta is often referred to in the Pali texts as the practice of patience. So we use all means in which we get here for ourselves with unconditional acceptance. So the imagery of ourselves as we are, as a child, as a dear friend, Some of us aren't so visual. So another way is having a visceral or felt sense of ourself as metta subject. Never mind trying to visualize. You might find that tension building up around the eyes, squinting and straining to hold some visual image. Don't need it. Let go and just call up a sense of yourself. However you may feel it, it may be quite physical. Which brings me, brings us to another skillful way of metta, and that is a soft, gentle mindfulness scan through the body, starting from the top of your head and floating meta-awareness, washing this awareness through the body over a period of 20, 30 seconds or a minute, and then doing that again. Sometime tomorrow I'll do a guided meta-using our bodies. For tonight, you just experiment with one of these. So there's the anchor that you may or may not find as helpful. The visual image, which itself can be the anchor, or felt sense that you use. Another tool, skillful means, is the use of phrases. 
First of all, you don't have to use them. When the Buddha taught metta in the Pali text, he merely instructed disciples to extend immeasurable love, compassion, joy, and equanimity in all directions. That's it. Later on in the Pali commentaries, uh, more form is created to help develop and deepen practice so that one could accomplish the metta or Brahma Vihara uh, deep absorbed states called jhanas. So you find the phrases helpful, you have them, and I'll repeat them. May I be safe. Here's metta as its power to protect us from inner or outer harm. Inner harm of greed, hatred, jealousy, envy, any kind of external harm. May I be safe. Second of the four phrases, may I be happy, peaceful. The intention here is that the mind stream release the knots entangles the any distress and just flow gently at ease with itself. Use the power of metta to cleanse our heart and mind, to bring light to it. May I be happy, peaceful. May I be healthy and strong of body. Metta, love of all traditions everywhere, having the power of healing. To whatever degree our kamma, our karma allows, rebalancing, reconfiguring our physical nature, here we call up metta. May I be healthy and strong of body. And may I be able to care for myself in this world joyfully, gracefully, peacefully, Hear the intention facing, as Michelle was saying, the daily vicissitudes. This is the equanimity aspect of metta, the lens through which we navigate our days with metta eyes, the soft eyes of metta, whether pleasant or unpleasant experience 
is a more buoyant and joyous response to life as it is rather than the conditioned habit of reactivity, contraction. All four of these phrases mean the same thing, just different applications. If you just use metta, just sit down and say, I incline my mind to metta. And never use the phrases, or use them intermittently, or use just one or two of them. All of this is okay. The primary aim is the emergence, gradual emergence, this uh, metta ember, tenderness, warmth, inclusivity, unconditionality. Just sit silently with yourself now as metta subject, exploring some of the tools I just mentioned, seeing what fits for you.
continue for a few more minutes. Just enough energy in each moment to stay linked to your metta subject, that is, however you're holding yourself as felt sense or image, and inclining on the level of intention, which is the most important, or using phrases to help incline that intention. Complete selfless wish for unconditional love, warmth, tenderness for yourself, a precious human being in this life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.